say um, thank you to Pastor and his wife, Mark and Joyce, for inviting me to be with you again. I was here in 1999. Can you believe that? I didn't even remember that. And Joyce had pictures to prove it. So we looked at them today. And, uh, and thank you for hosting me and others at your home today for lunch. That was really special. And, um, and then Paul and uh, Carol have uh, hosted me this weekend. Uh, I've had my own prophet's chamber. Um, down south, we call it a frog. Do they call it that up here? Family room over the garage, <laughs> F-R-O-G. And um, my own little place uh, with 24-7 police protection. <laughs> I mean, you know, wow. I mean, the, the towels, the towels that Carol put out in the bathroom are so thick. I'm going to have a hard time getting my suitcase closed tonight. <laughs> All right. So, just kidding. All right. The theme for our weekend has been Christ's last command, our first concern. The last command of Jesus before ascending back into heaven was for us to take the gospel of Jesus Christ to the entire world. That command is given five times in the New Testament, once in the Gospel of Matthew, once in the Gospel of Mark, once in the Gospel of Luke, once in the Gospel of John, and again in the first chapter of the book of Acts. Now, the reason I told you that, and you say, I already knew that, all right, but the reason I told you that is it's not just that Bible writers tell us that Jesus said that once, and they tell us five different times that he said that once. If you study each of those times where Jesus says it, it's given on a different occasion. So Jesus gave that commission to us on five different occasions. He didn't just say it once, and then the Bible writers wrote it down five times. He said it five different times. I think he wants us to get the idea that this is really important. So that's why we say it should be our first concern. And the title for our message tonight is Missions and the Lordship of Jesus Christ. And we're going to look in, in just a minute at a passage in Scripture, but let me just say a word about Columbia International University. You see the name here. Um, we're in South Carolina and uh, our graduates are now serving in 150 countries around the world, and uh, I'd really love you to get to know our school better. And uh, after tonight, the stuff that I brought is going to be all gone, so let me just tell you what's up there again. Uh, there's a magazine up there you might want to pick up called Connection, and it tells all about what's happening at CIU and through CIU, including the fact that uh, one of the leading contemporary Christian songwriters, Lara Story, how many of you have ever heard of Laura's story? All right. She was a student when I was the president, and uh, she has now been used to the Lord to write Christian music. She just ran, won a Grammy last year, and uh, there's a story about her in here, so you might want to read that. Uh, there's a story about uh, the founder of Chick-fil-A and his connection with CIU. You might want to read about Truett Cathy, and uh, that's in this magazine as well. So anyway, pick this up and, and read it. Uh, if you're through college or you're older and you say, uh, you know, I can't go back to college, but I would like to continue my education, we now have five online accredited master's degrees, which means you can get that degree from Long Island. You don't have to go to Columbia. There are five fully accredited master's degrees available now at CIU. You can pick up our little graduate uh, school program or our seminary program and find out a little bit more about that. Um, this piece that's up there has a, has a DVD in it, and you can take it and pop it in your computer and hear our president, Dr. Bill Jones, tell you what a biblical university is. We are not a Bible college, and we are not a Christian liberal arts college. We are a biblical university. 
And if you say, well, what does that mean? That's what this DVD explains, all right? What does it mean to be a biblical university? And this little DVD will tell you that. And then don't forget the little love story I told you about this morning, and there's still maybe 10 copies up there. So if you'd like to pick this up, you didn't pick it up this morning, Living by Vows, the incredible story of Robertson McQuilkin caring for his wife with Alzheimer's disease. Very moving. This actually is part of a larger book called um, A Promise Kept, that you can get at a Christian bookstore or Amazon or whatever, A Promise Kept. So if you want to read the whole story, you can get that book. But this is kind of taking the best parts out of the book and putting it in a little booklet. And uh, it's free, so feel free to take it off the table. It's, it's up there just as you go out the door uh, tonight. If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Matthew chapter 28. Matthew chapter 28. And we're going to start with verse 19. Matthew 28, starting with verse 19. Jesus is speaking, and here is what he says. You can watch the words on the screen, or you can look in your own Bible. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, period. If you and I take this sentence seriously, it will radically affect everything you do and everywhere you go. This single sentence has been rightly called the Great Commission. The Great Commission. Another way to say the Great Commission would be to say the huge task. The Great Commission. And in the single sentence that we read, starting with verse 19, Jesus tells us what he wants us to do. He tells us where he wants us to do that. And he tells us how we are to do that. And to see all those things from this single sentence, we have to study the verbs. There are four key verbs in the sentence that we began with tonight. One main verb and three helping verbs. You heard about the little boy at school that was having trouble with his verbs? He kept getting the tenses all mixed up, past, present, and future. His middle-aged school teacher was very frustrated. She made him stay after school one day, and for a solid hour, she drilled him by giving him sentence after sentence, and after each sentence, he had to tell her the tense of the main verb in that sentence. After about an hour, he started to get them all correct, she said, Danny, I'm really happy. I'm going to give you one more sentence. If you get this correct, you can go home. What is the tense of the main verb in this sentence? I am beautiful. He looked at her with great conviction and said, past tense. <laughs> all right, that's just a joke. But we have to look at the verbs. And there's one main verb, and that's seen in the words, make disciples. Do you see that there in your Bible? I've underlined that in, in, in my Bible. That is the commission. We are to make disciples. Not converts, but disciples. Do you know the difference? Converts grow old in the Lord. Disciples grow up in the Lord. And we are commanded to make disciples. And then Jesus tells us where we are to do that. He says, make disciples of all nations. Do you see that there? Now watch. 
when I study the Bible, I take every word that the Bible has in it seriously. And I want you to notice that this does not say make disciples of some nations. It does not say make disciples of most nations. It says make disciples of all nations. Our Lord's desire is that every man, woman, boy, or girl living anywhere on the face of the earth has a chance to hear, understand, and respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So the commission is clear. We are to make disciples of all nations, and then he tells us how. And that's seen by looking at the other three verbs. There are three other verbs in this sentence that we started with, and they are all helping verbs. They are actually participles. They are I-N-G verbs, and they are the following. We are to make disciples, first of all, by going, secondly, by baptizing, and thirdly, by teaching. See those three words in your Bible? Going, baptizing, and teaching. Watch, this is the how of the Great Commission. What I love about the way Jesus teaches is he doesn't just tell us what he wants us to do. He tells us how to do it. And he says the way to make disciples of all nations is by going, baptizing, and teaching. So let's talk about these three words just for a minute because this is the how of the Great Commission. Let's talk about the first word. Going. Now, in the, the verse that we read, it says, therefore, go. But it really should say going because the main verb is make disciples. He's saying, therefore, make disciples by going, going. It's, it's a participle in the Greek language. It's an I-N-G word. So the way we make disciples, first of all, is by going. Now, this word go is a strong Bible word. It's a strong Old Testament word. It's a strong New Testament word. In fact, you can study this word in Hebrew, in Greek, in Aramaic, in Ugaritic, in Syriac. You can study it in Arabic. You can study it in German, French, Japanese, Mandarin, Cantonese. It always means the same thing. It means Go. It's a synonym for don't stay. And when Jesus says you can't make disciples of the nations without going, he's not just talking about going from anywhere to anywhere, but watch. He's talking about, watch, he's talking about going from where people do have the knowledge of the one true God through Jesus Christ, to where people don't have the knowledge of the one true God through Jesus Christ. He's talking about going from where people do know the message of the gospel to where people don't know the message of the gospel. He's talking about going from where people do know about Jesus to where people don't know about Jesus and won't know about Jesus unless someone leaves there and goes there. You can't make disciples of the nations, Jesus says. If you don't go. Now I understand that not everybody here in this room is going to be able to go to the unreached peoples of the world. But we must all be involved in the going process. In fact, I know a church in the Midwest that has divided its congregation into three distinct groups. The goers, the senders, and the disobedient. So you can't make disciples of the nations if you don't go. So all of us need to be involved in the going process. The second word is baptizing. Do you see that there in your Bible? In verse 19, baptizing them. And did you notice that Jesus says baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit? Did you see that? Now, when Jesus says that, listen carefully. Jesus is not telling the baptism what to say during the ceremony of baptism. Now, I have baptized many people. I had the joy of baptizing many people in Italy where we were missionaries. And when I baptize people, I almost always say, I baptize you in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. 
But Jesus is not telling us here what should be said during the ceremony of baptism. He's telling us what baptism is. Baptism is open public identification with the triune God of the Bible. There is only one God who has eternally existed in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And when we make disciples, we ask people to openly identify themselves with the one true God. And they do that through the ceremony of baptism. Now, Pastor didn't ask me to say this, and I have no idea if it's an issue here, but if there's somebody here tonight and you really genuinely know the Lord Jesus Christ as your Savior and you've never been baptized, you need to be. You need to be. And I'm not even a Baptist. Really. I'm not. I go to a Presbyterian church in South Carolina, you know. But baptism is biblical. And when we make disciples, we go and we baptize. And then the last word is the word teaching teaching. Just right down there at the beginning of verse 20, you see that? Teaching them. This is, the, this is the how of the Great Commission. And all around the world today, hours before you and I even got up this morning, people like Jim and Eileen and many other people in other time zones that are up a lot sooner than we are, just because they're another, they are teaching. Teaching. Every day. Not just by what they say, but by the fact that they're there. You see, the Japanese people see the reality of the gospel in this couple. They're not, it's not just what they say, it's what they do. It's that they're there. They're there among them. And they're teaching line upon line, day after day, showing them by their love that they are Jesus' disciples. I mean, this is awesome. And this is the Great Commission. And this is what God has given to us to do. I love this but that's not what I want to talk to you about tonight. (laughs) After all that, that's not what I want to talk to you about tonight. Watch, because the Great Commission does not begin with verse 19. The Great Commission begins with verse 18. Look in your Bibles at Matthew 28, 18. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, therefore... Go and make disciples of all nations. Now watch. You know in the English language, whenever you see the word therefore, it's always referring back to what has just been said before. Now what has Jesus said just before he says, therefore go and make disciples of all nations? Here is what he said. Listen carefully. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. In the spiritual realm, in the physical realm, anywhere, everywhere, I am in charge. I tell everyone else what to do. All authority is mine. Whoa. Question. What right does Jesus Christ have to make such a categorical statement about himself? Answer, he has every right because of who he is. Who is Jesus Christ? He's God Almighty himself, the second person of the Trinity, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father. He's God Almighty. Of course he has all authority. And not only because of who he is, but because of what he did. What did he do? He left the glories of heaven. Pastor prayed this in his opening prayer tonight. He left the glories of heaven. He came to this sin-filled world. He was made in fashion as a man. He went down, down, down to the humiliating death of the cross. He did all that. That's why in Philippians chapter 2 we read, because he did all that, therefore God has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. By the way, do you know what the word Lord means? The word Lord means the one who has all authority. The word Lord means the one who's the king, the one who tells everyone else what to do. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now, 
I love it when people take notes. So if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Write this down. The starting point of the Great Commission is not the Great Commission. Write this down. The starting point of the Great Commission is not the Great Commission. Write that down. And then after you write that down, write this down. The starting point of the Great Commission is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. The starting point of the Great Commission is not the Great Commission. The starting point of the Great Commission is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. Watch, that is why verse 18 comes before verse 19. Are you following me? I speak in a lot of churches during their missions conference. And when I get to know people in those churches and we feel safe in each other's presence, sometimes a person will honestly tell me that their least favorite time of the year in their church's calendar is when they have their missions conference. I've had people tell me that. And I'm like, why? And they say, well, because that's when speakers all make you feel guilty. You know, somebody gets up there and talks about, you know, praying more. And then somebody gets up and talks about giving more. And then somebody gets up and talks about going. And, 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 and they tell me, and, and there may be somebody like that here tonight. Uh, and, 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 and you just, if you're honest, you just have to admit that you feel this internal existence, uh, resistance rising up within you. And, and you're thinking to yourself, I can't wait till this weekend is over and we get back to normal. Now, if that's true of you, your problem is not missions. Your problem is lordship. Because the starting point of the Great Commission is not the Great Commission. The starting point of the Great Commission is the lordship of Jesus Christ. Uh, a couple of years ago, I had the privilege of being the speaker for an amazing conference of 600 Arab Christian young people. All young adults came from four different countries of North Africa, and we met in North Africa. I'm not going to get any more specific than that. And those six, and we met for eight days. And those 600 young people met because they wanted to hear God's word and find out how he could use them as missionaries all across North Africa and throughout the Middle East. I mean, how awesome is that? 600. And I was the guest speaker. I, all my messages were translated into Arabic, so it was sentence by sentence and so forth. Now, when I went, the uh, organizers of that conference told me to be very careful when I crossed into that country. And I went through customs and immigration. And they said, don't lie. Don't tell any lies, but don't tell them anything you don't have to say. Be very careful about where you're going, about what's going on, because this was a Muslim country that we met in. And so I was very careful. And then at the conference, they gave me a whole list of vocabulary that I couldn't use publicly. I couldn't use the word Christian. I couldn't use the word Muslim. I couldn't use the word missionary. Um, and there was, there was a whole set of vocabulary I had to learn before I got up there uh, to speak. Now, everybody at the conference knew what the other words meant. And so when I used them, they knew exactly what I was talking about. So it's very interesting. So that was kind of a challenge because I'd never had to do that before. And then when I left to fly back to America, my flight was 2 in the morning, can you imagine? It was 2 o'clock in the morning, and they said, when you go through immigration, again, don't show them any pictures, don't tell them where you've been, don't lie, but don't say anything more than you have to. So I did that, and I finally got on my plane, and I flew back, and my uh, entry point in the States was Dulles Airport in Washington, D.C. And I remember when I got there, and I got through American Customs, and got my luggage, and you know, walked out into the hallway of the airport, and it was like this huge sigh of relief. Do you know what I'm saying? And it was like, I mean, I really wanted to get down and kiss the ground. It was like, I'm back in America. Now, I don't know about you, but I love America. 
I am red, white, and blue, through and through. I love this country. I love the democratic form of government that we have. I love the freedom to give and take and debate and speak publicly and not be afraid that we're meeting like this tonight and not be afraid that somebody's going to come to the door and arrest us. And I mean, there's almost no place in the world like America as far as freedom is concerned. I thank the Lord that without the firing of a bullet and without any proven graft at any poll stations that two elections ago and then the last election we elected to the highest office of the land the first person of color and nobody nobody rigged it he won fair and square and quite apart from what you think about the the policies and philosophy of our current president, the fact that we elected him to the highest office of the land, given our history of how we have treated the African-American people. I mean, where else in the world can that happen? I mean, I just love this country. I love it. I, I thank the Lord for it. Okay, now, I didn't tell them to clap, but I'm glad they did because I'm setting you up. And I want you to write down the next statement you're going to see on the screen. The Christian life is not a democracy. Now, you know, one of the things our country's trying to do militarily is help Iraq come to a democratic form of government, to help Afghanistan come to a democratic form of government. And I, I applaud that. But listen carefully. The Christian life is not a democracy. The Christian life, listen carefully, is an absolute monarchy. There is one who is the king. There is one who is in charge. There is one who tells everyone else what to do. And anybody who claims to be a part of the kingdom of God, of the family of God, recognizes the authority of our Lord, completely submits to that, and anything less than that is not the picture of the Christian life given in the pages of God's word. In fact, look what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says in John chapter 13. He says, you call me Lord. Remember, Lord means the one who has all authority. You call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is what I am. Now, I told you, I think, in one of my talks this weekend that I fly all the time, and I had three flights to come up here. I have only two flights back. That's kind of cool. And, uh, but three flights coming up. And, um, and I want you to know that when you get in a plane, unless you're with you know, your spouse or a friend, you'll probably end up sitting next to somebody you've never seen before. And listen carefully. If you don't talk to that person within 60 seconds of sitting down, the chances are you will not talk at all during the entire flight. So the minute I sit down, I start to talk. I mean, they can't get away. And this is what I say. I did it three times on my way up here yesterday. I asked my seat partner, I say, and by the way, yesterday it was a, a man and then a woman and then a man, all right? So I always ask this. I always say, hi, are you going home or leaving home? That's an innocent question, and it gets people talking about home, which is usually a warm subject. And so we talk about that, and then I do this. Now, you try it. You try it. It works. I do this. The second question I ask after I say, are you going home or leaving home? And then I'll tell them, you know, like yesterday I said, I'm leaving home, but I can't wait to get back. Or if tomorrow I'm going, I'll say, I can't wait to get home. I'm going home. You know, you just talk about that. Just, just nothing spiritual, just home, okay? Then the next question I ask is this. I say, what do you do? Now watch. When you ask your seat partner that question that way, and by that way I mean underlining the word you in the sentence that you speak. What do you do if you ask it that way after they tell you what they do professionally? Inevitably, they look at you and say, what do you do? You try it. You try it. It works every time. And when they ask me, what do you do? You know what I tell them? 
I serve on the administration of a small Christian college in South Carolina where we have 1,200 young men and women studying the Bible, preparing to take the message of Jesus' love and forgiveness to the whole world. Boy, does that start some interesting conversations. Now, I was flying to Cleveland about a year ago, and my seat partner was a very well-educated African-American woman professor. She was also an author. I've gotten her book since we met on the plane, and, and uh, we had a fascinating conversation, and, and um, it got into spiritual things and so forth, and then at some point she said, now, if I remember correctly, when we started talking, you told me you serve on the administration of a Christian college. Now, what exactly is your position? on the administration. And at that particular time, I, um, I can't remember if I was president or chancellor, but I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm the president or I'm the chancellor. And when I did, she, she literally physically kind of moved away from me and she went, oh my goodness, I didn't know I was sitting next to the big cheese. That's what she said, you know. And what she meant was, you know, I mean, that's a, that's a pretty important position. President, chancellor, you know, and, and I said, oh, Listen, that's just a title, no big deal. It just happens to be the place God has given me to serve, and I'm just happy to serve in that role. Isn't it interesting that that's not what Jesus does here? He doesn't say, you call me Lord. Oh, that's just a title, no big deal. Let's just talk about something else. What does he say? You call me Lord, and rightly so, for that is who I am. Don't you forget it. Now, if you're taking notes, I want you to write this down. Write it down. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Write it down. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Do you want to hear something cool? My wife and I were in London, England on the day of the royal wedding. When William and Kate got married, we were there, not at the wedding but in London, all right? And the night before the wedding took place, we actually went and walked the whole parade route where the queen was going to come and all the entourage and the flags were already up. I mean, it was, it was pretty exciting. By the way, we didn't go there for that. I was speaking at the first ever all-European Chinese missions conference. How awesome is that? There are so many Chinese believers in Europe now that they had a Europe-wide convention in London, England, and they asked me to be the speaker. It was, it was amazing. We did it in Mandarin, Cantonese, and English. And there were young people there and old people there, all Chinese people, burdened for the salvation of the world and wanting to know how they could become missionaries. And so I was the speaker, and it just happened to be the same week, you know, as the royal wedding, and so we were there. Uh, now, the reason I'm telling you that is because Great Britain, or the United Kingdom, which is its, um, you know, its accurate name, is a constitutional monarchy. Great Britain has a ruling monarch. Who is the ruler of Great Britain today? Somebody help me out. Queen Elizabeth. She just celebrated 60 years. This is amazing. She's an amazing woman. Now, here's my question. Is she the one who runs that country? No. Why? Because Great Britain is a constitutional monarchy. What does that mean? Watch. That means that the citizens of Great Britain, by democratic voting process, are allowed periodically to go to the polls, cast their ballots, and from the collected ballots, a party is chosen... And from that party, a prime minister is chosen. And the prime minister of Great Britain today is a man by the name of David Cameron. Thank you, David Cameron. He is the one who runs that country. You say, now, Dr. Murray, why are you telling us this? All right, now listen carefully. When the duly elected parliament in Great Britain meets to discuss and decide new legislation, every time they pass a new law, out of respect for the queen, they take that legislation to her. They ask her to read it, and 
in the bottom right-hand corner of the last page of that piece of legislation, they always put a dark, solid line. And after she has read it, they ask her to place her signature there and in so doing signify her approval of the new law because she's the queen. The interesting thing is, if she doesn't sign, it's still the law. All right, now watch. Jesus Christ is not a constitutional monarch. Are you following me? Now, when I was a student in college, one of the new Christian songs that came out, now it's so old, young people think it's new again, you know, because they haven't heard it, is entitled, He is Lord. Anybody remember that? He is Lord, He is Lord, He's risen from the dead, He is Lord, every knee shall bow, every tongue confess. Okay, so we used to sing that when I was a student in Bible college, and we'd lift our hands and praise the Lord, and He is Lord. I remember what the word Lord means the one who has absolute authority, the one that tells you what to do, and you say yes, no matter what it is he asks you to do. So he is Lord, he is Lord. And I would look around sometimes at all those worshiping and singing those words, and I would th- ask myself this question. I wonder how many people here who are singing those words are really meaning this. Jesus Christ is my king, but I am his prime minister. I decide where I'm going to go. I decide what I'm going to do, but I would never think of doing it without asking for his approval because he's my king. Now, I want to give you a little quiz at this moment, all right? It's just, I know it's not a school day, but I'm going to give you a little quiz. It only has one question. The answer is true or false. True or false. Do not answer out loud. Here's the question. It is good to include God in your plans. Don't answer out loud. True or false. It is good to include God in your plans. Now, if you know anything about this wonderful book, God's Holy Word, which is the basis of everything we believe and teach here at New Village, you will have said immediately when I ask this question, you will have answered false, and you would have been correct. Now watch. God doesn't want to be included in your plan. He wants you to be included in his plan. And there's all the difference in the world. And everywhere I go, including the campus of Columbia International University with all these wonderful young people, everywhere I go, I find people who are sincerely including God in their plans. And the scary, sneaky, subtle thing about it is that most of the plans that most of them are making are in themselves perfectly legitimate. But God doesn't want to be included in your plans. He wants you to be included in his plan. And you say, well, what is his plan? It's the evangelization of the world. He just told us that in Matthew 28, verse 19. Are you following me? In fact, I know people that come to the Lord with a piece of paper and their plans written on it. And at the top of that piece of paper, they put their name, my life, and then they put the things that they're planning to do. First of all, I'm going to go to high school and get a high school diploma and then go to college and earn a college degree. And while I'm in college, I'm going to prayerfully and carefully look for a Christian spouse. I'm going to marry a Christian. I'm going to get married to a, not a non-believer because the Bible says you shouldn't do that. I'm going to marry a Christian, all right? And then we're going to get jobs after we finish and we're going to pay off our school debt and then we're going to buy a house. We're going to buy a house, not rent, no rent, no, 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 no. We've got to build equity for the future, you know, build a little stability for the future. So we'll make the sacrifice, make those mortgage payments, buy that house. And then we're going to find a good church, just like New Village. No matter where our jobs take us, we'll find a church, we'll go, we'll get involved. Maybe at the beginning of our marriage, can't do, you know, a lot of stuff. But, you know, we'll help with the kiddies, we'll park cars, we'll sing in the praise team. If the church has a little one-week, you know, Missions trip down to Haiti, we'll scrape together the wherewithal and do that. By the way, did anything I say to you right up until now sound bad? All sounded pretty good to me. And then they take that list and they bring it to the Lord and they put a dark, solid line in the bottom right-hand corner. And they say, Lord, these are the things I'm planning to do. You're my king. Would you please sign and in so doing signify your approval of the things that I'm planning to do? And the Lord says, this is really interesting because I was just getting ready to give you a page. Looks just like yours. Got your name at the top. It says your life. And it's got a dark, solid line in the bottom right-hand corner. And this is what I want you to do. And I want you to sign. 
And you look at the page and you say, well, Lord, there's just one problem. What's that? Well, the page is blank. That's right. There's nothing on it. That's right. And you want me to sign? That's right. Okay, Lord, let's, let's get this straight. You want me to sign, and then afterwards you're going to put stuff there. You got it. Well, could we talk about this first? Sure, what would you like to know? Well, Lord, what if on my page you say, missionary? I just want you to sign. By the way, don't you dare be thinking right now. Well, I got off the hook on that one because I'm way too old. Don't you dare be thinking that right now. I participated a year ago in the memorial service for Aunt Lib McMurray. She died at 101. She graduated from CIU. She taught Bible in the public schools of Kannapolis, North Carolina for 50 years. Then she retired. And when she retired, she went to the mission field to Indonesia, and not to urban Indonesia. She went to rural Indonesia, backwoods Indonesia, no convenience Indonesia, and she served there teaching the children of the missionaries who were translating the Bible into the language of the tribes for 15 more years. So don't you dare say, I'm off the hook, thank you. Lord, what if you say, Africa, I just want you to sign. Wish I could take you with me to the Karanda Hospital in northern Zimbabwe. 200-bed hospital. 75% of all the patients have AIDS. And I've been there in the sweltering heat and watched the missionary, medical personnel, and the national Christian nurses hug those people, wash their bleeding wounds, and love those people to Jesus. What if the Lord says, I want you to do that? I just want you to sign. What if you say, inner city, I like Long Island. I don't want to go to something like, you know, Manhattan or Brooklyn, Flatbush Avenue. Give me a break. I just want you to sign. Lord, what if you say single, you know, as in not married? The Bible talks about singleness for the sake of the gospel. Lord, what if you say um, poor? I wish I could introduce you to Kent, one of our graduates who is a red-blooded man who would love to be married as much as any man I ever knew. And after he graduated from our school, he took a prayerful vow of celibacy and a prayerful vow of poverty, and he went to Calcutta, India, and lived on the streets as a single missionary for 10 years on $25 a month. I remember riding with Kent on a train in India, and him telling me about all the things that God was doing. I mean... He washed in the river. He didn't have a shower. Had to boil all of his water to make sure he got the impurities out before he drank it. I remember our kids just loved Kent, and, and our kids were in, in, in elementary school during this time, and, and um, we had a little can, a coffee can, in the middle of our kitchen table where we ate most of our meals, and, and on the can was written, Kent. And our kids would put their, you know, any kind of discretionary change that they had, they'd put in that can, and we'd fill it up, and we'd 
you know, transfer it into cash and a check, and we'd send the check to him. But he never, no matter how many people did that, he refused to take more than $25 a month. And he lived on that for 10 years. In fact, I'm sure that if one of your children came to you and told you they were going to do that, you'd try to talk them out of it real fast. Now, I know I'm being radical, but Jesus is radical. Lord, what if you say, downsize so you can give more? That'd be a good idea for some people on Long Island. Yeah, now, now, you, now you're starting to meddle, Dr. Murray. Get on to your next point, please. Lord, what if you say martyrdom, death, for the sake of the gospel? I brought with me tonight a little quote that I thought was so good. Um, it's by Elizabeth Elliot, whose husband Jim was one of the five missionaries. You know, we talked about them this morning, and Nate Saint and Jim Elliot was one of the five, and, and he died trying to reach the Alka Indians. And Elizabeth Elliot, of course, has written some tremendous books about that. And in one of her books, she writes this quote. This is what she says. She says, I've heard lots of people say, I think I'd just die if God ever called me to the mission field. Do you know what I would say to that, she writes? You won't be much use out there unless you do. No one wants you out there unless you've already died to yourself and presented your body as a living sacrifice. Please do not bother to go to the mission field. End of quote. Now, uh, what needs to happen here tonight? And by the way, I haven't talked to your pastor. He didn't know I was going to say any of these things. Nobody put me up to anything I've said tonight. And don't you dare say, well, I know somebody was talking about me. If anybody was talking about you as the Holy Spirit whispering in my ear, that's all I know. I don't know any specifics about anybody here tonight. But I'll tell you what needs to happen here tonight. Some of you need to take that page that you've been writing on and you need to tear it up into a thousand pieces. And then you need to reach out and take the blank page from the hand of the Lord, sign in the bottom right-hand corner, and in so doing, say to him, Lord Jesus, anything, anytime, anywhere, I am ready. Lord, the answer is yes. Now what's the question? You see, the issue here is not missions. It's the master. It's not the cause. It's the king. Look what Jesus says. Look what Jesus says. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? And you say, well, what did he say? He said, all the world Every creature, go. Listen, that wasn't the coach using hyperbole in the locker room before the game to get the boys psyched up. It was a literal statement. He said, every person, everywhere, here we are 2,000 years later, and there's still 2.35 billion people that are still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? Now, I'm being very hard on you tonight. And I want you to know, watch, that it's not an easy thing to sign the blank page. It's not. Do you know why? Because what the Lord puts on your page may indeed be very difficult. It's always good. It's always right. But it may not be easy. And that's why it would be absolutely criminal for me to end this message without showing you just for a minute Matthew 28, verse 20. Oh, I hope you didn't shut your Bible. You see, we started with verse 19. We went back and looked at verse 18. But now we have to go back down and look at verse 20. After Jesus says, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing, teaching. Then he says this, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, you'll notice that I highlighted the word I here because it's very interesting in the Greek language. And by the way, when your pastor, and I'm sure he says occasionally, now, if, if you just would understand the intention of the Greek here, it helps you get a little better idea of what Jesus is saying. When your pastor says that, or when a speaker like I uh, say that, we're not showing off. 
It's kind of like, oh, you know, these guys, these scholars, you know, they know Greek and they kind of, you know, run circles around us. We're not trying to show off. We're just trying to help you understand the intensity and the intent of the original language. And in the original language, in Matthew 28, 20, when Jesus says, surely I, he uses a very interesting Greek expression. The, the, the author, Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses an interesting Greek expression, and it's what we call the ego me expression in Greek. Watch. And the ego me expression is a literal repetition of the personal pronoun I. And so when Jesus says this, what he's saying is this, and surely I, comma, I am with you always. That's exactly what Jesus is saying here. Now, why does Jesus repeat? It's, it's the, by the way, that's the Greek way of underlining. That's the Greek way of italicizing. You know, I, I. So Jesus says, now watch, I want you to go, and I want you to make disciples of all nations, but don't you forget that I, I will be with you. Now, why does Jesus say I twice. The reason why he says it twice is because he wants you to be sure and understand who he's talking about. He says, just in case you didn't know who it was that was saying this, it's me. I, I will be with you. Now, here's the question. Who is the I? Who is the one who promises to go with us? And the answer is the one who has all authority, Jesus Christ. Now, when you go back up into verse 18, remember what he said? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Now watch, when, usually when you see the word authority or power in the English Bible, which we're studying from tonight, almost always authority or power in the English Bible is the English translation of the Greek word dunamis. Dunamis. From which, interestingly, we get English words like dynamite, power, authority. Most of the time when you see the word power or authority in the English Bible, it's a translation of the Greek word dunamis. And Jesus could have used that word in verse 18 when he says, all power or all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. But he doesn't use that word. And Matthew doesn't use that word when he's writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. He uses a completely different Greek word. He uses the Greek word exousia. Exousia. You say, what's the difference between dunamis and exousia? Now watch. Dunamis means raw power. Exousia, watch, means power in legitimate hands. Watch, it's the difference between a criminal with a gun and a policeman with a gun. A criminal who has a gun has dunamis. He has power. He has authority. He can move you around. He can back you up against the wall. But a policeman with a gun not only bears a gun, but he wears a badge. And he has exousia. And Jesus says, that's the kind of authority I have and I am going to go with you. Now, I want to illustrate this for you from the world of baseball. So we can put, just put the next, surely I am with you always to the very end of the age, from the world of football, excuse me, for football. I love American football. I love college football. I love professional football. And you want to know the truth? I love to go to games because of the excitement and the crowd and hot dogs and whatever. But I really prefer to watch the games on television. And I'll tell you why. Because of the commentator. I mean, talk about encyclopedic knowledge. The history, the, you know, they can almost predict what's going to happen next. It's just incredible. They tell you all these facts about all the players. And you know what I'm saying? And I just love to listen to these guys talk. And you'll remember that when you're watching a football game on television, right after the kickoff and the return, then there's always a little break before the first play is run, and during that break, they show you the starting line. And they put the faces up, and then they tell you their stats. 340 pounds, no neck. And you're like, where did these guys come from? I mean, how do their mothers feed them? I mean, these guys are humongous. 
Now, that's what I call a modern-day illustration of dunamis, raw power. These guys can do serious damage, and they do. They do. But now watch. The real power or authority on an American football field is not the 360-pound linebacker. It's the little skinny guy with the striped shirt and the whistle. He has exousia. You see, the guard can knock you down, but the ref can throw you out. And Jesus says, that's the kind of authority I have, and I'm going to go with you. Now, let me illustrate this from baseball. I love American baseball. It's been my privilege to preach the gospel to the Philadelphia Phillies, to the Miami Marlins, to the St. Louis Cardinals, and to the Los Angeles Dodgers. I've spoken to all those teams in the clubhouse, in their locker rooms, and I didn't just, you know, tell little stories about being on first base with Jesus. I told them they were lost, that they needed to be saved, and that Jesus paid the penalty, and they needed to bow their heads right then and accept the Lord as their Savior. And I did this not because those teams know me from Adam, but because I happened to be the personal friend of Jack Hibbard. For many years, Jack Hibbard was the chaplain of the Philadelphia Phillies baseball team. And years ago, when I was living in that area, Jack called me on the phone one day, and he said, how'd you like to speak to the Phillies before their game this weekend? And I said, well, yeah, I'd love to. And he said, great, you're on. Now, he said, when you come to the game, don't do what you usually do. And I said, what do you mean by that? He said, well, I'm going to guess that when you come to a Phillies game, you start out a couple hours early, you drive down through the suburbs into the inner city because that's where the stadium is. And he said, you then park about two miles from the stadium because it's cheaper. And you walk the two miles to the stadium and then you buy a real cheap ticket in the, way up in the top section. And then halfway through the game, if you see some empty seats down lower, you kind of slip down. I said, how did you know all this about me? He said, you don't have to do that this time. He said, when you come down to the stadium, drive around behind, you'll see a big iron gate with a big sign that says VIP parking. You just pull your car right in there and park right outside of the Phillies clubhouse. All right. So I did, drove down, drove around. There's a big gate, VIP parking. I started to drive in, and an armed guard stood in front of my car, stopped me, and said, where do you think you're going? And I told him I was going to be the speaker for the Phillies Chapel, and it was the Dodgers that, that weekend, so I was going to speak to both teams, the Dodgers and the Phillies. But I didn't have any paperwork, no proof. He was not about to buy my story. I was not going to talk my way in. And I was starting to panic when right then the clubhouse of the Phillies, the door of the Phillies clubhouse opened and out walked Jack Hibbard. And he walked over and stood next to my car. And he said to the guy, I'm with him and he's with me. And the minute he said that, the guy stepped back and said, come on in. Do you know why? Because Jack Hibbard has exousia. And then we walked into the clubhouse. You can't get in the clubhouse because there's an armed guard standing there. He looked at me, he never budged. Then when he saw Jack next to me, got his key out and opened the door. Not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. Are you following? We walked into the clubhouse, and I kid you not, the very first person I met was world-famous third baseman Michael Jack Schmidt. Michael Jack Schmidt! Hey, listen, I wrote this down, I have to tell you. USA Today poll of the greatest franchise baseball players for the Philadelphia Phillies. Michael Jack Schmidt got 65% of the vote. Steve Carlton got 21%. Robin Roberts got 8%. Richie Ashburn only got 4%. Michael Jack Schmidt got 65%. Three MVP awards, 10 Golden Gloves, eight home run titles, one World Series. He leads the Phillies, even today, in home runs, hits, RBIs, runs scored, and strikeouts. And I shook his hand. In fact, I had a clean baseball in my pocket. He signed it. I took it home to our son. Then I shook hands with Lenny Dykstra and Darren Dalton and, and Larry Boa. And they were all there. And then we went to the elevator to go up to the locker room for the chapel. And you can't get in the elevator. There's an armed guard standing there. He looked at me, he never budged. Then when he saw Jack Hibbert standing next to me, turned around, got his key out, opened the door. Not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. 
And when we walked into the elevator, I kid you not, standing right in the middle of the elevator was Andy Musser. Andy Musser, the voice of the Philadelphia Phillies. I've been listening to him on the radio for years. It's because of him that I buy tasty cakes. (laughs) We shook hands. And then I went to the locker room, spoke to the guys, gave a gospel invitation. By the way, Mike Schmidt was a strong believer and really led the way for those teams to come to those chapels during those years. It was just awesome. And then after the chapel was over, they took me out through the tunnel onto the open field. You can't do that. There's an armed guard there, but when he saw Jack next to me, he let us go out, and I stood out on the field during batting practice. And then when the game started, I didn't have a seat up in the nosebleed section. I had a box seat on the third base side right behind the dugout. And then when the game was over and all those poor people were still trying to get out of long-term parking, I was home! Not because of who I was, but because of who was with me. Are you following me? Now let me take you back to North Africa just for a minute. 600 Arab young adult Christians meeting in the desert, praying and asking God how he could use them to reach North Africa and the Middle East. And at the end of one of my messages, a beautiful young Egyptian girl by the name of Sarah came to talk to me. And she had tears in her eyes. And she said, Dr. Murray, I am willing to sign the blank page. I am willing to go wherever Jesus wants me to go, do whatever Jesus wants me to do, And that's not going to be easy. And I'm going to miss my family and miss my church and miss my country. He calls me elsewhere. So I want you to know, sir, my problem is not that I'm not willing. My problem is I'm not sure I've got what it takes. I'm not sure I'm able. I, I, I don't know if I could learn another language. I don't know if I could live far away from my parents. I don't know if I could live somewhere where to speak openly about Jesus might mean that somebody would kill me. I, I, I'm willing, but I'm just not sure I'm able. What a, what a wonderful, honest word to me. And you know what I did? I showed her Matthew 28, 20, where Jesus says, look at, I, I am going to go with you. So here's the message. Watch. Because Jesus is Lord, we must go to the nations. But now watch. Because Jesus is Lord, we can go to the nations. Because he goes with us. Do you believe that? Let's pray together. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? God doesn't want to be included in your plan. He wants you to be included in his plan. Lord Jesus, you said all authority has been given to me. Therefore, 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 Go and make disciples of all nations. I pray that from this study of a very familiar passage tonight, that you will speak deeply to many hearts here in this room. And show us, Lord, ways that perhaps we haven't seen before or ways that we really know we need to be involved but we haven't been willing. And and help us, Lord, to be involved in a deeper way than ever before in getting the gospel to the whole world, especially to those who are still waiting to hear about Jesus for the first time. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. Now, I'm not done. I want to offer you a a way to respond to this message tonight, and I have brought with me, and I talked to your pastor about this, I brought with me a little blank page card I would like to offer you, all right? And here's what it says. You'll see it on the screen. Can we put that just that last one up on the screen, Ron? He might need to, to, to get to it for a minute. But um, on the front of the card, it says this. And by the way, 
Uh, I'm going I'm to offer this to you in a minute. We're going to sing a song, and while we're singing, if you really mean it, I want you to come from where you're seated to the front, get a card from me, and just take it back to your seat. This is not something you turn into me. You don't turn it into the pastor. It's something you keep. You put it in your Bible. You put it on your shelf. It's, it's uh, designed in such a way that you can stand it up like this and look at it every day. And here's what it says on the front. Lord Jesus, anything, anytime, anywhere, I am ready. And then there's a dark, solid line for you to put your signature. Then on the inside, it says this. By signing the front of this card today, I decide that Jesus Christ is Lord and Master of my life. I no longer want to merely include God in my plans. I want God to include me in his plan, whatever that means, whatever the cost, anything, anytime, anywhere. And then there's another dark, solid line. And it says, witnessed by. And you give this to your spouse or to a friend. And you say, I want you to be a witness to the fact that I've signed the front of this card today. And then stick it in your Bible, put it on your bookshelf, look at it every day, remind yourself that you have said to him in a new, fresh way tonight, I am saying yes to whatever the Lord wants me to do, to wherever the Lord wants me to go, especially in terms of world evangelization and how he wants to use me and my family to do that. If you're willing to grab one of these cards tonight, take it and sign it, I'd like to give it to you. We're going to sing. You don't even have to look in the hymn book. Uh, it's, are we ready? Yeah. What, what number is it? 454. You can look if you want, but you all know it. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. We're going to stand. Let's stand together right now. We'll sing this song. And while we're singing, don't wait. You know, I don't want to drag it out. I'm not going to keep you late. Uh, I just want you to come right away and get a card and take it back to your seat. While we sing this song, I have decided to follow Jesus.